And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Thursday and a happy Thanksgiving to all our viewers in the United States and beyond. Those who celebrate it, Wall Street therefore is closed while U.S. investors enjoy their turkey and trimmings a day after stocks posted some pretty solid winnings. Tighter hopes that jumbo Fed rate hikes are in the final innings. Why? Well, the latest Federal Reserve minutes out on Wednesday suggest the U.S. Central Bank may be poised to reduce the magnitude at least of upcoming rate hikes. That doesn't mean that borrowing costs won't still rise, of course. Rather, they may just go up in smaller increments than we've seen over the last six months or so. That potential rate revaluation helping boost the mood in Europe, at least, with stocks there hovering near three-month highs. Fresh numbers showed improved German business confidence also helping sentiment there too. And Also, of course, I think helping offset the ongoing concerns about China's rising COVID cases and what's going to be ultimately required to suppress the disease. Chinese stocks falling a quarter of a percent today as cases rose to all-time highs. Outbreaks reported across multiple cities as factory workers push back two against health restrictions. We'll discuss this complex and ever-shifting picture with special guest Michael Pettis, a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who will join us later on in the show from Beijing. But first, power is slowly returning to some homes in Ukraine after further massive attacks on the country's energy infrastructure. The death toll, too, has risen to 10 after Russian strikes across the country on Wednesday that plunged thousands of homes into darkness and left many without water. Meanwhile, thousands of mine workers were trapped also where they were working. In fact, 3,000 miners have subsequently managed to escape from underground, but that was earlier today. Matthew Chance has the details from Odessa, Ukraine. Yeah, I'm out and about because the power cuts across the country and the water shortages have really led to, you know, a humanitarian crisis across the country. You've got thousands of people on the move, uh, moving from their sort of war-torn frontline uh, locations to big cities like Odessa, where they can at least get some kind of relief, some shelter, some food, some electricity provided by generators. We're at a re- reception centre right here in the middle of Odessa and there's been a big crowd of people. There's about five to 700 families from all over Ukraine that come here to try and get food and water and sort of basic sanitation supplies as well. It's, it's a big center. Actually, some people here, some of the stuff they've picked up. Can I have a look at what they've got? This woman here is from the Donetsk Oblast. Of course, that's one of the main centers of the fighting. She's come here several hundred kilometers, miles away. And she's come to people and say, Yeah. All right, some, some sweet corn or some whatever it is, beans. Uh, I specified can of beans, some oil, um, some washing up liquid here, toothpaste, a lot of this, of course, from uh, USAID, from the United States. But there are other donors uh, from around the world and from private companies as well. It is all sort of helping, uh, scratch the surface at least, uh, providing some support for these people. But the big problem is the missile strikes from Russia are continuing. Uh, Electricity and water systems are being pounded by the Russians. And it means that with every day that passes, this humanitarian crisis, these shortages are getting worse and worse. 
And EU energy ministers have failed to agree on proposals to cap gas prices put forward by the European Commission. It comes as Russia continues to restrict fuel supplies to Europe. Let's bring in CNN's Anna Stewart. Anna, I'm not sure how much confidence there was that anything could be agreed today, quite frankly. And you were sort of hinting in that direction <laughs> earlier uh, yesterday when we were discussing this too. Um, what was proposed and what was failed to be agreed upon? Well, they did agree some things that we knew they would, like the joint procurement of gas. They'd actually already really agreed that. And, of course, the need to accelerate the deployment of renewable energy. But the thing we were waiting for was what are they going to agree or are they going to get anywhere on the proposal to cap gas um, on the wholesale market in Europe? They have been divided on this for many weeks. I was going to say all week, for many, many weeks now. Emotions have really run high. And actually going into the meeting this morning, it was always interesting looking at the uh, the doorsteps and the arrivals, but the Czech Deputy Prime Minister said it would be, quote, spicy. The Maltese uh, Energy Minister said the proposal wasn't, quote, fit for purpose. And this was the perhaps most telling doorstep of all from the Belgian Energy Minister. Take a listen. I don't think that is achievable today. The text on the price mechanism was only presented uh, two days ago. And let me be clear, um, I'm, I'm very happy that there is a proposal on the table. This is what we have been requesting since a long time. So it's very good that we have a proposal on the table. But this uh, proposal needs to be uh, worked uh, um, in the details. Uh, it, it needs to be uh, become a better, a better text. And then I'm, I'm very confident that we can reach an agreement uh, on, on a short time. Now, the proposal that was on the table that was mentioned there was the EU Commission proposing a cap on the front month of gas futures at €275 per megawatt hour. That's actually really high. So lots of people said, well, actually, that's never really going to kick in. So what good is it? Um, Which is probably those people saying it's not fit for purpose. Um, Some, of course, in the EU, many actually, really oppose the concept of a, a cap on gas prices full stop on the basis, largely, that it doesn't do anything to reduce gas demand, which is a very important tool at the moment dealing with the energy crisis. And some would actually rather see a completely different sort of cap. So similar to what you see in Spain and Portugal, perhaps putting a cap on gas uh, on the gas price from energy suppliers when it's used to generate electricity and having consumers pay for the subsidy. So kind of leaving out the state and leaving out the wholesale market. So many different proposals, so many member states completely uh, at loggerheads, really, and really quite emotional about it. They feel very strongly about this. And I very much... Um, question how they will come to an agreement in actually less than a month for that next meeting. Julia? Yes, Shakespearean. Plenty of sound and fury signifying nothing. (laughs) CNN's Anna Stewart there. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Anna. Okay, to China now. And tech giant Foxconn is apologising for underpaying workers at the factory that makes iPhones for Apple. This comes a day after some staff clashed with police in Zhangzhou as they protested over low pay. And at the same time, China has recorded its highest number of daily cases since the pandemic began. Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Lots to deal with more broadly for authorities in China, Selena. But let's talk specifically about this Foxconn plant. I read earlier today that they're actually paying some of those workers now to leave and, and get a bus home. Talk us through what, what's happening. Yeah, Julia, and it appears to be working because new video shows workers lining up to take buses to leave the factory. So after those days of violent clashes, Foxconn trying to quell the chaos there, offering the equivalent of 1400 U.S. dollars for those workers to quit and leave. Now, those workers, they were angry about wages, dirty living conditions, chaotic COVID rules. And we obtained more video today showing how those protests turned violent. We learned that squadrons of riot police arrived and 
one video, we could see a group of police in white hazmat suits beating the workers with batons and metal rods. We found other videos showing workers tearing down COVID barriers, masses of them throwing these metal bars and metal parts towards police. Foxconn wanting to quell the situation, but this, of course, puts more pressure on Apple, the Foxconn supplier. They need these workers ahead of the key holiday season. Now, these types of public displays of dissent, they are rare and authoritarian China, but we have been seeing more instances of clashes between law enforcement and people in China because of these harsh COVID-19 lockdowns. People still in China struggling to get access to food, necessities, and critical medical care during lockdown. In fact, recently I visited one man in Beijing who is grieving right now over the death of his father, and he blames his father's death on the country's zero COVID policy. They sit together, sobbing, shaking, looking at photos of his father, her husband. They mourn his death at their home on the outskirts of Beijing. (laughs) The local government killed my dad, he tells me, breaking down in tears. I just want to get justice for my dad. Why did you lock us down? Why did you take my dad's life away? His 58-year-old father needed emergency medical help when their building was locked down. He says there were no COVID cases in the building, but China seals off entire neighborhoods, even when there are only suspected cases nearby. Do you blame your father's death on this country's zero COVID policy? Yes, very sure. He says his father was in healthy condition when he suddenly collapsed. No one could go in or out of the building for help. He shows me the numerous calls he and his mother made to the emergency line. He recorded one of his many calls as he became increasingly desperate. He says the ambulance took an hour to arrive. By then, it was too late. He shows us the way to the hospital. It took us about five minutes to get from his house to the hospital, less than two miles away. When his father was sick, he had four relatives waiting outside his building, begging to go in and drive him to the hospital, but they wouldn't let them in. He says authorities in the hospital gave him no explanation for why the ambulance took so long. All they gave him was this document, stating the date and time of his father's death. His mother, unable to speak, overcome with grief, She cries like this day and night. Why are you taking the risk to speak to us? I I don't want this kind of thing happen again in China and and anywhere. Because of the lockdown and the the medical shortage shortage of ambulance caused my father's death. Outrage in China is mounting over the human costs of the country's draconian zero-COVID policy. China carefully counts every COVID death, but not the countless people who've died because they couldn't get emergency care during lockdown. Authorities have acknowledged many of those cases, but they usually blame poor enforcement of zero-COVID instead of the policy itself. Before his father's death, he fully supported the country's zero-COVID policy. But the local government's execution of the policy is beyond reasoning, he says. It's inhuman. He shows me his favorite picture of his father, surrounded by family. 
His son, who was closest to his grandfather, now struggles to eat or focus, he tells me. The corner of his room piled with lettuce, potatoes, leeks, and canned food. He says all this food here is in case they get locked down again. The corn planted by his father is one of the few things he left behind. His grief now mixed with fury. He struggles to comprehend the meaning of it all. His father's death in the name of zero COVID. And Julia, this man told me that all throughout the pandemic for these whole three years, he had a lot of faith in the country's zero COVID policy. He believed it was saving China from a massive amount of deaths. But after this experience, he's struggling to comprehend how a policy that the government claims is to save people's lives is causing so much tragedy. Because for three years, we have been reporting on stories like this over and over again. People who have died, young and old, because they could not get that emergency care fast enough during lockdown. And what's causing so much anxiety right now in China is that people don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Nobody knows when all of this is going to end. We now have COVID cases surging again to record highs, more lockdowns, more restrictions across the country. Yeah. Selena and Gain, uh, incredible reporting. It's that point that you made, I think, where's the light at the end of the tunnel for this? And um, the implementation of that policy and the extent it goes at times, um, creating uh, more tragedy. Selena Wang, thank you. From Beijing there. Okay, straight ahead, China's COVID conundrum. As we were just discussing there, how can Beijing protect both its economy and its people as COVID rises once again? Some really tough choices we'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. And as you were just hearing, Beijing facing an incredibly tough battle. If the zero COVID policy is maintained, China's economy and its people suffer. But of course, relax that policy and the country's healthcare infrastructure simply won't be able to cope. Either way, the surge in cases is having a very real impact on people's lives there. And this is what zero COVID's done to a normally bustling Beijing Street. Our next guest, Michael Pett, is tweeting on Tuesday that it's clearly causing activity to slow and food shops are now getting busier as people stock up supplies. And Michael Pettis is senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he joins us now from Beijing. Professor Pettis, Michael, great to have you on the show. Um, you live in Beijing, so what we were just hearing before the break is the sheer degree of uncertainty, I think, that, that people are living with at this moment. Can you just describe what for you and then the people around you, this has been like and continues to be like? Well, you know, we're sort of getting inured to it. Uh, the, the, there is a sense of wariness on the street, but nothing like the panic that there was back in, uh, in I think it was in April when we had the big lockdown in Shanghai. Uh, the streets are quieter, uh, several parts of town are closed, shopping malls, restaurants, etc. And uh, today, when I went food shopping, I noticed that the lines were longer and people were buying more stuff. But there isn't really that sense of panic. I mean, that's a, at least a good sign. Is there a, is there a, a fear, though, of, um, of once again being locked down, a fear of the virus? Or has even that sense evolved over the, the past few years? It, it ties to sort of behavioural economics, which I think we'll get to, but just your perception of, of concerns and where those concerns lie. 
You know, Julie, I think there's probably two very different groups of people within China. The sort of urban, educated, middle class, I think they're not terribly worried about getting COVID itself. They've seen and they know what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, they're far more, and I include myself in that, far more worried about getting caught up in quarantine or getting locked into your apartment or something like that. But I think among, you know, uh, workers and rural people who have perhaps less connection with the outside world, there continues to be a real fear of COVID. It's sort of, you know, it's presented as this very deadly disease and people are quite frightened by it. What does that mean in terms of activity in terms of the economy the economy because certainly we outside china are trying to guess not only what this means for the economy for the country domestically but also what the the spillover effects are for the rest of the world what, what's your sense just by being there engaging activity engaging i think confidence also which is which is a crucial part of this too well, you know, it's going to exacerbate the problems that we've already had, mm -hmm. which were in themselves exacerbated two or three years ago at the beginning of COVID. And the key problem is the really weak demand side of the economy. Uh, and that's driven by very weak consumption, which in turn drives weak business investment. And consumption is very low, partly because people don't want to go out or they're very nervous. So they're saving more of their income but also because incomes in many cases, particularly for workers and, and migrant workers, are actually down. Um, for the rest of the, of the world, this matters because in the last two years, we've seen really extraordinary trade surpluses in China. And until about two months ago, what really drove those surpluses was very rapid growth in exports. Uh, imports just barely kept pace. Um, but in the last couple of months, because of problems in Europe and the U.S. and in the rest of the world, uh, export growth seems to have turned around and it's now starting to contract. And what that probably means is that import growth is going to be quite significantly negative as the trade surplus continues to expand. So that means China is going to be importing much less from the, from the rest of the world than it did even during the, uh, the the previous COVID periods. Really important because at a time when we're talking about the United States slowing, when we know parts of Europe certainly more broadly are entering or have already entered recession, you're talking about an added sort of growth slowdown kicker from China consuming less as well next year. Yes, and it's, it's um, you know, <clears throat> All of us sitting here, the, the, the main topic of conversation in, in Beijing and in other parts of China is basically when do you think COVID will end? When do you think the, mm. the zero COVID will be relaxed? And none of us really know. But I think most economists would agree that until that happens, it's pretty useless expecting a significant improvement in the Chinese economy. Can you put some numbers on it for me? Because you and I were talking earlier off air and you were just describing to me, we've talked a little bit about it in the past on the show, the sheer quantity of GDP in China that comes from investment, 
fixed asset investment from what we've seen, at least in the past, of investment in the property sector. And, and we've long talked about this need for a greater rebalancing and for sort of the consumption and the consumer side to, to play more of a role in the economy. Just can you put some numbers on that just so that my audience can understand how important that imbalance is? And then we can talk about perhaps some of the hopes of boosting the demand side of the economy because it's it's vital now and it's vital in the medium and longer term too yeah you know the numbers are really striking and i think as much as we talk about them people still underestimate just mm. how much of an outlier china is in in the rest of the world the mature economies typically invest around 20 percent of gdp on average and if you look at uh, at high investing developing countries in the midst of their growth boom, they're typically investing 30, 31% of GDP. China is not in the midst of its growth boom. We're, we're definitely on the slowing down side of it. Um, but China nonetheless invests about 42% of its GDP. In other words, a third more than high investing, rapidly growing economies. And that's simply not sustainable. In fact, we know what the consequence has been, which has basically been for 15 years, as more and more of this investment is non-productive, investment in the property sector and in infrastructure, China's debt burden has really surged. So one way or another, they have to bring investment down. And if you bring investment down, the problem is that because it's such a powerful engine of growth within China, uh, bringing it down means growth will slow significantly. And the only way really around that is if you could get a significant surge in consumption, which is really tough to do. But the problem that we're seeing in China is that we're not even getting a, a, a reasonable growth in consumption. The growth in consumption is really stagnated. And so that makes this whole adjustment that much more difficult and that much more complicated. And particularly if you want to try and boost your social security system or increase wages, you have to work out ultimately um, how you pay for it, which uh, is something else that every nation, but also China, has to consider. Um, Michael, I know, again, a lot of the Western coverage after the party congress was about what the transition of power and to some degree what the consolidation of power politically meant for, for Xi Jinping and for the economy. From your perspective, from an economics perspective, I think it's really fascinating because, again, the debate was whether this reformist is remaining or whether he's gone and what that's going to mean. Does it change any of the options and the challenges that you've just presented? Does it help them in any way with tackling what needs to happen in the economy and how they go about doing it? I think the reshuffling of the um, of, of the policymakers, including policymakers on the economic policy side, is probably much less important than many mm. people think. I know there was a great deal of disappointment because a lot of the favorite reformers were moved out and replaced by loyalists. But I think I think we we overestimate the range of options that China has, and therefore the impact of, of, of good policy versus uh, bad policy. The fact is China has really limited options. It's got to bring investment down. And the main policy decision there is bring it down more quickly or bring it down more slowly. And as you bring it down, that's going to drive growth down with all of the consequences. So you have to bring up consumption, which is also very difficult to do. So in a funny way, you might argue <clears throat> 
that <clears throat> a more um, sort of a less fractious Politburo might actually be slightly better for China simply because the in order to get consumption up, there has to be really major income transfers, uh, mainly from local governments to households. And it would be really surprising if local governments didn't oppose that uh, pretty, pretty ferociously. So uh, I, I, I'm not sure that whatever happened in November, re or sorry, in, in November, yes, was as, uh, or October, I'm, I'm totally losing my time here. But whatever happened during the Congress um, <laughs> yeah. uh, really mattered a, a great deal to the prospects next year. Yeah, but it, it lays out the challenges, the short term, the medium term and the longer term while trying to deal with uh, the battle of, um, of COVID rising once again. Michael, great to chat to you. We'll speak again soon. Clearly much more to discuss. Michael Pett is there. Thank you for joining us from Beijing. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. And for those of you who love holidaying on cruise ships, the question is, do you love it enough to call it home? Well, one company is betting that you just might. Cruise company Storylines calls itself a residential community at sea, offering people the chance to buy their own piece of a luxury cruise ship. However, I have to say, it doesn't come cheap. Residents range from one to eight million dollars for the lifetime of the vessel. There's also a limited number of 24-year leases that start at $647,000. Storyline says the ship will have room for around 1,000 residents and it's due to set sail in 2025. Founder Alistair Ponton says the ship allows people to take advantage of the freedom to live and work anywhere in the world. And joining us now is Alistair Ponton, founder and CEO of Storylines. Alistair, fantastic to have you on the show. I think we get the vision here for those that do love cruise ships. But talk to me about that and who your target audience is. Who's going to live on this ship? Yeah, thanks, Juliet. Look, um, it really is a very big mix of people. Um, we have people from um, all age ranges, of course, but um, people from all around the world. Currently, I believe we've got about 20, 22 countries represented in our resident pool. Um, and they represent um, families, um, remote workers, and of course, retirees, and pretty much everyone in between. So it really is a mixed bag. And that's been, you know, I guess, a really important point for Storylines um, to create that uh, community feel within, within the resident community. Aha, the keyword there was have. So you've already sold some of these residences. What proportion have you sold? And is that a mix of ranges? Has the eight million pound house sold? Uh, yeah, no, uh, no, absolutely. So um, uh -huh. we're sold over 50% at the moment. Yeah, over 50% at the moment uh, are pre-sold. Um, and that's, again, a mixed bag, again, of um, the entry-level residences, as you mentioned, but also some of the $8 million ones as well. And we're already seeing that some of the residence types, um, there's five primary um, uh, residence uh, types available, and we're already seeing some shortages of those um, in, in the mid-range, at least. How much time do you think they anticipate actually spending on this cruise? Is this the equivalent of a, of a holiday home? And what facilities do you have? I guess the obvious thing, given even just the past two years, a hospital, medical facilities, schooling for education for children, if they want to do that, what's available on the ship? 
Yeah, look, we always say that this is an extension of, of your normal life, so you shouldn't have mm. to give anything up by coming to live with storylines. So as you said, there's a hospital, um, there's also education facilities on board. Um, people should be able to come and live, and this is their primary place of residence. And some of our residents are actually, this will be their only place of residence, so they've got no, nowhere to fall back to, so this is it for them. But um, a lot of people, of course, will use this as their second home, um, and a lot, of our, a lot of our residents like to go on cruises, so they will, they will come home to Storylines and go out, still go out and do their regular cruises every year. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of different, different types of people coming to Storylines. Is there going to be a plan for the year? of where you dock and where you travel and so people can perhaps hop aboard for a period of time and then hop off if they want to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, people treat this as their as, as a home. So you can come and go as you like. Um, there's no sort of commitment to be on for, you know, seven days or 14 days or anything like that. Um, the itinerary, of course, is set long in advance um, from operational perspective and the residents have um, some input into that as well. And, you know, we pick ports based on, um, of course, desirability, but also part of our plan is to be staying in port for three to five days. So it's a very slow-paced atmosphere. Um, so people really get the opportunity to, you know, go into the, into the, not only the ports, but into the local regions and, and deeper into the, into the countries that we visit. So, you know, it's really an opportunity for them to give back and um, provide, you know, more than just... Um, influx into the port regions but into the entire into the entire communities that we go and visit Mm, it? I mean, it looks very beautiful. These are the renderings that we're, we're showing now. You know, it's funny. I always do when I have guests like yourself on, I always do a quick test of friends and family. And I have to say, you know what the first question came up, of course, was COVID. Please pray we don't have one. But the next pandemic, do you imagine in that kind of situation you would get an exodus? Because I don't know anybody who even those that like cruises that wants to get stuck on a cruise ship with something like COVID. How would that be handled? Yeah, I mean- yeah, look, and that's an interesting question because, you know, primarily cruise ships to date haven't been set up for something like that. So right. we've got the luxury of being able to build into our designs things to enable us to maybe continue sailing during perhaps a pandemic. So um, there's a lot of uh, uh, te- technology that we're building into the actual design um, to enable us to basically, you know, isolate residents in their in their room if they need to um, or better yet, stop, stop infection to getting in in the first place, mm. whether it's airborne or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, the trick is to stop it before it happens, uh, where possible, of course, but maybe that's not so easy. <laughs> so isolating air within apartments, like even to that level? Yeah, exactly. So no shared um, air travelling between different residences. So you can actually do that. So, you know, cruise ships haven't been designed to this sort of level before, but I'm sure they will be in the future. Can you be profitable if you just sell all of these apartments? At that point, is this profitable? I'm just trying to even imagine what it costs to kind of run this and operate this kind of um, operation. I'm sure you've got a great business plan, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah look, Julie, for us, it's, it's more, of a, um, more of a real estate model than a cruise model. So, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the residents, once, they're, once they come on board, um, it's like a HOA fee. They pay that fee and that covers all their, um, all their all-inclusive fees for the whole year. So that's all their food and beverage. Um, activities, um, use of the wellness center, um, bowling alley, the, the golf simulator, you name it, everything that's on board that you could possibly want, <laughs> access to all of those things. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I I'm very excited to see what happens. Um, you've got to get cracking, actually. 2025 is just around the corner. Um, Alistair, great to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, coming to talk to us about it today. Alistair Punton, founder Thank and you, CEO at Storylines. Thank you. 
All right, from a non-stop cruise to a meal we can't refuse. It's Thanksgiving Day in the United States, and I am thankful to be with all of you every day. I'm also very thankful to once again be presenting our yearly look at the tasty stocks investors have been feasting on in 2022, as well as the unappetizing corporate turkeys. Let's call them that. First up, investors giving thanks to the energy sector ranks. Energy, as you would perhaps imagine, the best performing U.S. stock sector with Occidental and Constellation up 130% plus since January. Some phenomenal pharmaceuticals too. Merck and Bristol-Myers, two sector winners up more than 25%. IBM, a rare tech outperformer too, shares truly computing up 11% as revenues their rebound. The rest of tech, well, feeling a little bit, shall we say, feather-brained. Meta, the worst performing fang, off more than 65% as advertising sales slow. Investors clamoring for less metaverse spending over there too. Netflix streaming less than gleaming. Call it a crown frown or a royal ruckus with shares down more than 50% year to date. And even blue chips have been whipped. Manufacturer at 3M suffering an almost 30% post-it note plunge, the soaring dollar weighing on foreign earnings there. And finally, stored returns at US auto giants Ford and GM amid rising recession fears. And we aren't done yet with the winners and the losers in a World Cup whipsaw. Japan defeating Germany on Wednesday by two goals to one, their first ever victory over the four-time world champions. And footy fans are eagerly awaiting the tournament's debut of Portugal's Cristiano Ronaldo after he and his club Manchester United parted ways earlier this week. World Sports Amanda Davies is live from Doha with all the action for us. Amanda, one of the best things about the World Cup is we get to speak to you just about every day and I tell you what never mind the football the Japanese fans tidying up after themselves with some pretty iconic images never mind the win of the game yeah I think it wasn't only the Japanese team that won uh, last night Julia I have to say it has become traditional we see it at the Formula One we saw it at the Rugby World Cup that was held in Japan but win lose or draw It has become a brilliant tradition from the Japanese fans after the game. Rather than running out into the center of Doha to celebrate, they got out their rubbish bags and they essentially started a litter picking mission. And the team do exactly the same in the dressing room. A really, really fabulous moment. But, I mean, they absolutely had something to cheer after that sensational victory from their side last night. Not one that many people predicted, even if the Japanese had been quietly confident uh, in the run-up to the match. Uh, Takuma Asano, the scorer of the winning goal, nicknamed the Jaguar, said he felt it felt like a dream after not only winning, but coming from behind to produce that first victory over the four-time world champions. You have to say it makes life really, really hard now for Germany, particularly given they're in the same group as Spain, the side who thumped Costa Rica 7-0 last night. But as you can see, we are here at quite an unusual football stadium. It's called Stadium 974, named after the country code of Qatar, but also because it's made out of 974 containers, shipping containers. And it is going to be the first ever World Cup dismountable stadium that will 
be taken apart after the end of this tournament. And tonight, the person that most people are talking about gracing that pitch inside is the one and only Cristiano Ronaldo, making his World Cup debut here in Qatar just days after that uh, somewhat acrimonious split from Manchester United. All eyes on him as he begins what is widely expected to be his final World Cup, looking to help Portugal claim that one major piece of silverware he hasn't yet won in his career. Be very, very interesting. The word from the camp has been there has been no disruption to their morale, to their preparations for this game against Ghana. But ultimately we'll find out in, in just over an hour from now, uh, a really, really colourful, loud, large contingent, not only of Portuguese fans, but Ghanaians as well. A lot of the Ghanaians already based here in Qatar and uh, they have one player that they're keeping an eye on, Andrew Ayew, their captain who plays his club football now here in Doha at the most successful club in the QSL, Al Saad. I got the chance to speak to him uh, a couple of months ago. He was very, very excited about the moment uh, that he would take to the pitch for the first time. He feels in front of two sets of home fans. Yes. I have to say, though, I don't think there's ever been any delight greater than those Japanese fans. I'm, I'm quite obsessed by them. Congrats to the uh, Japanese soccer team on their soccer prowess and also to the people on their uh, clean-up etiquette, I think, too. And I believe it's one hour, 17 minutes and 35 seconds until we see Ronaldo. So there we go. We're very excited. Amanda Davies, great to have you with us, as always. Enjoy. And that's it for the show. Thank you for watching. We'll be back tomorrow. Marketplace Europe is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.